Hey y'all, welcome back to another episode of the Crude Audacity Podcast, the podcast dedicated to talking shop, shit, and all things strategy with oil patch influencers. As always, I'm your host, Catherine Mills. I'm a reservoir engineer with a focus on advanced characterization. So today, let's talk. I'm a little pissed off, and I think it's time to start getting loud. So I'm very excited for today's podcast because, as I'm sure you have all seen, Uh, The recent headlines, the false allegations, everything that happened over this past weekend, it's got me fired up a little bit. So today, we are going to be discussing the anti-oil rhetoric and the humanitarian efforts of our industry. We're going to look at what is fact and what is false. Our influencer today is a geophysicist by trade. Beginning his career in Boise, he has led field studies across the Arctic, Africa, Asia, Europe, and of course, the lower 48. His research includes hydrocarbon detection and contamination analysis. He has expanded it into glaciology and archaeology, and he has seen firsthand the impacts and reach of this industry through his experiences. Dr. John Bradford, thank you so much for joining the Crude Audacity today. Well, thank you for uh, having me. I appreciate it. (laughs) I very much appreciate it because I know you're headed to Jordan first thing tomorrow morning. That's right. (laughs) I'm so thrilled to have a true scientist and expert on this week's episode. Before we jump into today's primary topic, we need to know how your career and research came to be. Your newest title might be Vice Provost of Global Initiatives and Environmental Programs, but your career has far reached into the realm of of the fossil fuel industry. So can you take us through your background? We want all the details, get specific. How did you decide to join the realm of geophysics? Um, So how did I get into geophysics. So I uh, began my, uh, I guess, adult life as a, somewhat of a troublemaker. Did you? <laughs> I did indeed. And uh, <laughs> uh, because of that, I needed a little bit of aging. So I joined the military when I was 19, uh, spent three years in the 101st Airborne. And also at that time, I knew I could get uh, money for college as part of that. So that's, I learned a lot. That's a huge benefit. I learned a lot while I was there, uh, of course, and matured a little bit. So that, that set me up pretty well for uh, for college. Uh, and then when I went to college, I, um, well, you know, let me, let me say something about the current generation of students that we're trying to recruit. So mm-hmm. generation Z students, um, one of the things that, the, are those millennials? No, that's the, it's the post-millennial generation. We have a post-millennial generation. <laughs> we do indeed. Oh my goodness. I'm getting old. <laughs> generation Z. So generation Z, one of the primary motivations for them choosing a career is feeling like they're going to have a contribution to society. I love that. Um, and I can say that, honestly, that was one of my primary motivations when I was uh, deciding what to major in in college. So I went, I had enjoyed physics in high school, um, and so I chose to, to major that uh, major in that while I was in uh, college. And I really just loved the idea of bringing in um, an understanding of the physical world and uh, a enjoyed and was good at mathematics and bringing those two things together in physics was something that really fascinated me and uh, like many uh, like many uh, kids who come out of high school uh, I had no exposure to geophysics I probably had never even heard the word uh, until I was maybe a senior in college and I had an opportunity to work with a geophysicist at University of Kansas Don Steeples uh, doing a senior research project um, That's pretty cool. And I knew from phys- from my physics work that I didn't want to spend all of my time in a basement lab in a physics physics building somewhere. And I also <laughs> like the Big Bang Theory. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also didn't see myself being somebody that was uh, would be happy or satisfied with just being huddled over papers and equations all the time. I'm definitely an outdoors mm-hmm. kind of person, and I saw geophysics as a way to do that. And I think that's probably a fairly common occurrence that comes with a geophysicist, somebody who loves the outdoors, who also loves physics, so you can bring them together as a, uh, as a profession in geophysics. Uh, but again, I was quite motivated and committed to doing something I felt um, would be a benefit to society generally. Uh, so initially I was really interested in environmental geophysics and mm-hmm. groundwater issues in particular. Uh, I went to Rice University after I finished my undergraduate degree. Went to Rice University and um, uh, for a graduate degree in, phys- in geophysics, sorry, um, and 
um, while I was there, I had a chance to be exposed to a lot of things. And uh, at that time, the department at Rice, uh, the geophysics group had a lot of exposure to oil and gas mm -hmm. geophysics. Um, and I hadn't really been exposed to that before. And it was quite clear in that that that's really where the state of the art was, right? In geophysics, geophysical imaging, seismic technologies, all of this uh, was developed with um, at, to a very high level in the oil and gas industry uh, because of the vast resources that are available there. Um, and I saw a way to sort of marry um, this really advanced state-of-the-art geophysics that was being practiced in oil and gas with um, some of the problems that needed to be addressed on the groundwater and environmental side. So um, I spent a lot of time um, working with techniques, tools, and things that were being developed for oil and gas, um, and then applying those to the, uh, to the environmental to the environmental characterization mm -hmm. world. So that's what I primarily focused on in graduate school. But I also, at the same time, had the opportunity to work with a lot of folks in oil and gas. I worked on problems that were uh, hydrocarbon exploration related. Yeah. Um, and then was able to apply the very same techniques to environmental kinds of problems. So you think about... I mean, uh, that that's a foot in both realms. That's excellent. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Oh, well, and I, I hope that that gave me a little bit of perspective that um, is it's probably it's probably somewhat unique, but maybe allows me to talk to both camps. I know you're not as fired up as I am right now after reading the tweets this weekend. I'll, 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 well, yeah, we'll get into that more. We'll get into more of that later. I don't think it's beneficial to anyone to have that kind of rhetoric going on. No, I, I agree. I don't think it's helpful. So... Um, so you, you started working in oil and gas, but you've done so many projects across the world. So can you talk to us a little bit about yeah. some of some of those, uh, I guess, research events? Yeah, I was going to. Well, so I was going to say so that if you think about the the from a physics perspective, if you think about the problem of finding um, uh, hydrocarbon reservoir mm -hmm. in a deep uh, in a deep earth system. Uh, so you have a thin layer of, of hydrocarbon. Let's simplify it a little bit. You have a thin layer of hydrocarbon sandwiched between different layers of rock and water, right? And so you need to detect that material, and mm -hmm. it's because of the contrast and geophysical properties that you can. Yes. Um, it's almost exactly the same as finding, uh, if you have a hydrocarbon contaminant gasoline in a groundwater system, for example. Yes. So you have uh, gasoline floating on an uh, aquifer. And the, you need to find it in the same way, and exactly. uh, the tools are, are quite analogous. I have a talk that I give sometimes, which is uh, oil exploration at a depth of two meters. Oh, really? <laughs> so this comes from uh, work that I did in the Arctic. Okay. So if you have an um, uh, oil spill from whatever source, could be natural sometimes. There's natural seeps, which could mm -hmm. release oil into the environment, or it could be um, uh, a human-caused uh, yes. release. <clears throat> in that environment, you get... You know, oil's lighter than water, floats to the uh, top of the water, but gets trapped at the base of the sea ice. Yes, so exactly. So <laughs> you have two meters of sea ice, a little thin layer of oil, and then seawater underneath. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need to be able to detect that. And you can use the same types of tools to detect that as you can to find a hydrocarbon reservoir that's, you know, five or six kilometers in the subsurface. Ooh, so, I like that. Um, anyway, so that's, so that's uh, interesting, and that's one... Uh, project that I worked on for a long period of time and worked in uh, Norway and offshore Alaska um, and then did some laboratory work at the Krell facility in New Hampshire. Oh, very cool. Um, uh, but quite interesting and primarily using ground penetrating radar mm -hmm. to detect uh, oil spills under under sea ice. Okay. Uh, so that was one. Uh, I worked in using very similar techniques to try and understand uh, distribution of water in glaciers and ice sheets. So uh -huh. in that I worked on, uh, had projects in Greenland, uh, projects in uh, Norway, projects in Alaska to work on that problem also. And you can use the same sorts of tools. You have to apply them in a little bit different way, but the analysis techniques, the imaging technologies, all are there. And part of that helps us understand so certainly we see that uh, climate is warming in the northern mm -hmm. parts of the, uh, of the world, and um, those techniques and tools can help us understand how that's impacting the ice environment. Okay. Um, similarly, we can do that with permafrost. So I've worked in permafrost environments in uh, northern Alaska quite a while, doing the same, doing the same sorts of things. That's really cool. Um, what, did, what all did that involve? 
Um, so again, we were using ground penetrating radar yes. primarily uh, to look at how um, to look at how permafrost was melting beneath uh, streams and the, the rate at which oh. it melted beneath streams, and that impacts the cycling of nutrients that yeah. are used in the ecosystem. Okay. Um, it's kind of interesting there. So we had a <laughs> we had a question on the proposal that we wrote, which was how will climate change impact nutrient cycling in Arctic streams? And we had uh, the idea that the melting beneath Arctic streams happens, you know, when the mm-hmm. when it starts to thaw in the uh, summertime, that the ha- melting happens quite slowly, and um, uh, that the if it was a warming climate, that mm-hmm. the melting would happen more quickly. Yes. Uh, but what we found was that the melting in that system actually happens almost immediately. <laughs> as soon as you start oh. getting flow of water in the streams. It just kind of warms it up yeah. naturally. So we knew that the, the answer to that particular question uh, was that uh, it won't have any impact because... No the, impact. <laughs> it makes uh, me feel better, at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there's other 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 impacts on that system but for that particular question that uh, it was quite clear that there was very little impact uh, from changing that uh, system so so those are a couple of things that I worked on uh, I also worked on um, geothermal problems in uh, particular trying to understand how a big geothermal system is tied into uh, some of the impacts on the ecosystem and the at the very sort of small microbial scale okay. uh, so this is a project that we did in the Alvord desert um where is that i'm sorry i don't know (laughs) oh yeah probably a lot of the listeners won't know that either so that's uh one of the least populated locations in the lower 48 so that's southeast oregon really yeah i've actually never been out there so i don't know anything about that area it's a it's a pretty interesting place so that's uh it's lies at the in the rain shadow on the uh, eastern side of the steens mountains and uh a uh, very dry place, hardly any people. <laughs> lots of ra- lots <laughs> of rattlesnakes. I like that part. <laughs> hardly any people. That's a, that's very appealing. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah, you drive many miles without seeing a without seeing a soul out there, but uh, but there's a big there's a big uh, dried up lake bed out there, and there's a lot of interest in uh, uh, so people are uh, racing cars out there. Really? Because you know, it's a long flat stretch of dry. Lake beds or like the Bonneville. Sounds like I need to go visit that and see what that's all about. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, so an interesting place, but there's a a big geothermal system out there. Geothermal system is in the center of the basin where there's a hidden fault system that Mm -hmm. actually comes to the uh, comes to the surface. Um, So we're trying to understand how that was connected with the large structures, um, and understand how that was connected uh, also to the environment at the surface and how that was impacting um, the local ecosystem. Hmm. Uh, so, but so we could use geophysics to image that system and try to better understand the flow of water. So after I finished my PhD, I was at University of Wyoming for a little bit. I worked on a coal bed methane project while I was there. Oh, very cool. Um, Gotta love it. it was That was in the powder though, right? Yeah. Okay. I love the powder basin. So. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Powder River Basin. Anyway, so we were, anyway, so I was there and then I went to uh, Boise State after that and spent 16 years at uh, Boise State on the faculty in various capacities. Yeah, you had a lot of roles at Boise. Hmm, that's true, yeah. Can you so, take us through some of them? Would you like to hear that? Okay. Yes. <laughs> so I started out as a, a research faculty person and was still actually working on the coal bed methane work when I, when I moved there. Um, and then I joined the regular faculty in, I guess it was about 2005, and then okay. um, became the director at that time of the um, Center for uh, Geophysical Investigation of the Shallow Subsurface, which was primarily focused on uh, groundwater issues at that time uh, and groundwater contamination. But also, uh, we did look do uh, some work and had an interest in uh, near-surface geophysics for helping oil and gas exploration. So it's difficult if you're doing seismic exploration to um, characterize the near surface at mm-hmm. the level of detail you need to um, optimize imaging. Um, so there's a lot of technical details that I won't go into <laughs> for purposes of this, but doing the sorts of work that we did in our center was beneficial for, mm-hmm. for that. Um, so that was uh, another aspect of the work that we did there. Um, so I was in that role for three years and then um, 
uh, started doing more work with the SEG and a, a Society of Exploration Geophysicists, uh, which is largely an oil and gas mm-hmm. um, membership uh, focused on exploration for uh, for oil and gas. I was on the board there for one term and then did a, a second term later on uh, as president of SEG, um, all while I was still at Boise State. So mm-hmm. gave me a really great exposure. So I was my research and uh, work in my geophysics discipline was primarily on the environmental side still and, okay. and on the glaciology side. At the same time, I was working really closely with uh, partners and colleagues and businesses and corporations in yeah. the oil and gas industry and my role with, with SEG. So and you made sure not to just stay in academia. You were a part of industry in addition to academia. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I think that's so key because people forget that. Yeah. And I can say I never worked. Uh, I never worked for an oil and gas company, mm-hmm. but I worked very closely throughout my career in different in different roles uh, with industry and with partners in oil and gas. So, Makes a huge difference. Um, and I ha- as uh, president of SEG, so I became president of SEG in the midst of the downturn. Uh, Which one? In the, the current, <laughs> the current one that we're not that we haven't left yet, but the big the big crash, right? Okay. Um, so. Uh, if you look at um, the price of oil and gas, it was crashing. The crash began just before I took over as SEG president, and um, I was in the midst of that, and SEG also felt the impact of that significantly, right? So we had a big drop in revenues. We had to start eating into our, um, we had to start eating into our uh, reserve fund, Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, we had challenges with staffing and everything, so... I was feeling in that role, in that yeah. leadership role, a lot of the same pain that our industry partners were feeling. And uh, I think, so in hindsight, you know, perhaps I wouldn't have chosen that particular time yeah. uh, to serve in that. I don't but know I, that anyone would have chosen that time. But I think I, I think I learned a lot from that. And, and part of that role, you know, you get to, you have the opportunity to travel the world, mm-hmm. meet with partners all over the world, and, and going through that experience in that time of crisis for the industry was, um, I, I think, an experience that I, I just wouldn't give up for anything. Um, it's painful, <laughs> and I understand, but but being able to see that and get that uh, perspective and the industry perspective in that particular time was, um, uh, was really valuable for me personally. Um, and also gave me a, a motivation to sort of um, move into a different, a higher level role than the one I had been feeling, feeling as a typical sort of faculty member, just plugging along and doing their research. So. Well, good. <laughs> I know we're very excited to have you here. So how did that switch come to be? Yeah. So as I was, I, we were very happy in Boise. It's a, a lovely city. And, oh, and Boise I don't know if you've is beautiful. Been there. Really nice place to live. And uh, my wife was very happy there also. And I uh, had thought for a long time that there was no place in the world that I would leave Boise for, except for here, except for Colorado. Except School for of Mines. Golden, Colorado. <laughs> That's right. So I grew up in Colorado. So, okay. So it's home. I grew up on the Western Slope in Palisade. Oh, okay. Actually. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Wine country. <laughs> yeah, it was peach country when I was there. Oh, it's but peach it's country too. Yeah, you're still right. Still peach. Still peach country. A lot of the. So I worked in the orchards and. Uh, I worked picking fruit when I was a kid. So you've been an outdoor enthusiast really your entire life. It Absolutely. didn't just start from your research. It's it's always been your It's initiative. always been that way. Yeah, in fact, my, my research uh, evolved from my love of the outdoors and liking to liking to be uh, in the outdoor, outdoor environment. That's wonderful. Yeah. And a lot of the research I've done has been sort of in extreme environments in the Arctic and the mountains yeah. in Alaska and stuff, which came from my love of the mountains and my prefer- preference to be cold. I know, right? I hot, definitely so. have that. I feel like I'm a mountain person over a beach yeah. person any day. So. Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, so I, I really thought that the only place that could get me to leave Boise was uh, School of Mines. Um, and so the geophysics department here uh, happened to be running a search for a department head in mm-hmm. uh, 2016. So I thought, well, it's an opportunity. So I threw my uh, threw my hat in the ring and That's was lucky enough. That's when I worked enough. for Ramona, so I might have helped with that. I don't remember, but I might have. <laughs> Well, that's interesting. Maybe I owe you a thank you. So. Um, I'm not sure about that, but <laughs> I probably filed something for you. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> anyway, so I so I applied for that and was lucky enough to get the 
position. And, and at that time, I, uh, I thought that maybe I would apply for Ramona's position whenever, if and when she decided to retire. Okay. Uh, but I didn't think it was only going to be two years yeah. from the time I took the department head job, but it was. <laughs> Uh, but these positions, so this is ultimately uh, the sort of position that I wanted to be in because I think it's a spot where you have a chance to have a bigger impact. Oh, yeah. And um, Enact change at a higher level. Exactly. Um, also, have, I'm very cross-disciplinary in my, both in my training and my thinking, and I, uh, I wanted to be able to have an impact uh, to a broader group of disciplines uh, mm-hmm. on campus generally and understanding of the reach and impact that Minds has more generally, I felt it was a great opportunity. So so Vice Provost of Global Initiatives, can you talk to us a little bit about what that entails? Yeah, so I'll, I will start off by saying that all my, my peers, the other Vice Provosts mm-hmm. on campus, uh, Kevin Moore and Mike Kaufman, they also have global aspects to their, to their work. So we okay. all... All of us have some component of that in the in the work that we're doing. Excellent. Um, but really, it's trying to um, develop new um, education opportunities for our students. Mm-hmm. Also, trying to engage potential students um, that are outside of the U.S. to to come to uh, to our institution. Um, but it's also developing research opportunities for our faculty outside. It's uh, creating partnership opportunities for mines and, and uh, other organizations, which could be government, industry, or universities and other parts of the world. Uh, so it's doing all of that. And I have to say that, um, so there's a lot of things that are ongoing right now, but it's also, um, it's also uh, a time where we're trying to develop our strategy okay. uh, for global engagement. So something that we, uh, we don't have a, a systematic uh, process for uh, analyzing opportunities outside and so we're working on that now I think it's important to have that sort of systematic way to understand how to allocate our resources absolutely as effectively as possible yeah so you've been in this role for four months now let me see yeah almost four months almost four months and (laughs) September will be four months maybe by the time this gets uh aired I'll (laughs) I'll have been there for four months (laughs) Well, okay, so I absolutely love that you are a true scientist. You have your foot both in fossil fuels and in the Mm. environment. So this is why I'm fired up. Over this past weekend, we saw a lot of headlines, and they're still circulating around, but there's a term called environmental or climate alarmist. And essentially, um, most of them are non-scientists, and I feel like to a certain extent, they are there to rile people up instead of slow down, look at the facts, and come up with a genuine solution to a moving forward type system. Um, but the headlines this weekend we saw from Bernie Sam- Sanders, uh, criminal charges against oil and gas executives, high treason, in the greed, uh, eliminate fracking. We see AOC pushing... Uh, the Green New Deal, which is essentially calling for an end to all fossil fuels, specifically oil and gas, in the next 12 years, um, or else we are literally, according to her, we're going to burn and fry up. And this is rhetoric that's been around since the 1970s. Then uh, Elizabeth Warren jumped on the bandwagon and tweeted out, on her first day as president, if she gets there, she will put a moratorium ban, end it all, fracking fossil fuels, everything. Essentially, overnight, her first thing to plan to do is to sign paperwork to end our industry, end fossil fuels. So the thing I woke up to this morning was a title uh, or a headline that stated, there is now a war on the oil and gas industry, similar to the claims a few years ago with Obama claiming a war on the coal industry. Given that you have experience in the environmental realm as well as the fossil fuel industry, what is your reaction to sort of the hype that's coming back? Yeah. Well, so it's not helpful, that's for sure. I, mean, I would agree. <laughs> I think I think generally extremists on both sides of any argument, whether whether it's oil and gas, climate change, any kind of environmental thing, uh, spew out a lot of things that are not very helpful and and extreme positions um, that are coming from politicians at a 
high level. Uh, it's not art. just politicians. It's also those in the celebrity realm that just want the high five and the extra likes and tweets and. Yeah, yeah, it's true, and and so it's not it's not helpful. And you know, I didn't see the particular tweet of, from Elizabeth Warren, but um, one thing I can say, and that's quite clear, if you were to. If you were to ban oil and gas today, whether it was the right or the wrong thing to do, mm -hmm. if you were to ban it today, it would be a global disaster, right? I would agree. Um, yes. What are we going to do for what are we going to do for our uh, energy supply? How are oh, we going to How are we going to create electricity? <laughs> right? We can't do that tomorrow. No. Even even if it were viable to use um, wind and solar to do that starting tomorrow, we don't have the infrastructure to support it, right? Correct. So uh, so that's a that's an issue that we need to be realistic about. Well, you right? see things are, I mean, if you go to the commissioner's meetings, you see things in the news constantly. Oil and gas, fossil fuels, whichever, whatever you want to call it, right now it's oil and gas. We're responsible for global warming. We're increasing CO2, groundwater contamination through fracking. We have acidized the oceans. That's one of my favorites. Um, Quite a few people, when they go to speak out against oil and gas, they claim we're uh, responsible for earthquakes. We are melting the ice caps, um, destroying you know the penguins and the polar bears. Basically, there there's no good coming out of our industry. We're just money hungry, greedy, you know, rich engineers and geologists and geoscientists, and they're ignoring the vast reach and all of the, I guess, humanitarian efforts that have come out of this industry. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, so it's a big a big topic and as I mentioned before we started, I'm going to try and, I don't want to be uh, too political, but no, I just I, I just agree. try to make sure that I'm presenting a, a view that's realistic mm -hmm. um, and uh, fact-based. I like fact-based. <laughs> so uh, I might be fired up, but you can be the calming source. <laughs> you're fired up, but that's true. So, so I, so one of the things that I want to point out, I think that we at Mines have a special role to play, and we have to be quite careful in that. But since we have really a long connection with industry, and we understand uh, issues that energy uh, industry faces, we also understand how energy has contributed to society, yes. the oil and gas industry in particular. Uh, but we also understand, you know, issues associated with climate change and um, how our use of fossil fuels is impacting that. Mm -hmm. um, so we understand all of these issues, and I think that we understand well um, how to create realistic solutions to move us to a different place in the future. Mm -hmm. um, so we can play a role in that conversation, and I think... Um, one, if somebody is making extremist statements that has a high profile, it's not helping us get to a realistic solution for the problems that we all face as a global. I completely agree. As a global society, so just because you might be the loudest in the room doesn't mean you're coming up with the best solution. That's right. So one of the things that we have to recognize is that we all in the in the United States, especially and other many other parts of the world, we enjoy an amazing quality of life that hasn't been seen at any other time in history. Right, and yes. we see that now primarily because of uh, uh, energy that was created, you know, by the oil and gas industry using fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. um, one of the consequences of that, which was um, an unrecognized and unintended consequence, right, is that uh, CO two emissions that are related to that um, have a warming impact on the climate, and we know that that's true, and the physics behind that are relatively simple um, the way that those physics interact with the complex earth system or not mm -hmm. and so that's what leads to making it challenging through global climate models to predict with precision how that is going to affect the the global climate and other things in the system like the water cycle and acidification of the oceans and all of those things those are not easy to predict no um, but the basic physics are relatively mm -hmm. simple and were recognized uh not with high profile, but we're certainly recognized, you know, more than 100 years ago even. So well, so that's there. But What do you think about the climate models? Because you said the idea of any scientific analysis is to, you know, recreate the situation as accurately as possible in order to predict the future. But someone who works in climatology, uh, even the uh, chief meteorologist, uh, the uh, international organization mm -hmm. came out and said, what is being claimed versus 
what's actually happening and how well we are able to predict it have proven inconsistent uh, since yeah. since the honestly since I think it was the 1960s is really when they started uh, tracking CO2s, tracking environmental changes based off of fossil fuels, and fracking really did not happen until the late 40s, early 50s. People forget that. It's been around for a while. It's so. been around for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> fracking has been around for a very long time. In but fact. that's, it almost sounds like a bad word. So it's, it's, that's what people go back to. Fracking yeah. is the bad thing. Yeah, and fracking, fracking directly is not um, a contributor to climate change or CO2 emissions, right? I would say no, but <laughs> that's why I'm trying to control myself. <laughs> so, if, and, and the whole issues around fracking are not increasing CO2 emissions because we'll have, um, we'll be used, utilizing fossil fuels, whatever the source. Mm -hmm. Fracking provides an opportunity in the United States for us to have greater energy independence. Correct. Right. Um, and there are other separate issues around <laughs> fracking, and I don't know if I have time to get into that or not. But oh, we can have a second podcast. Don't you worry. <laughs> okay. <A> part two. <laughs> uh, I work just down the street. <laughs> I have to. I, I can't. I can't uh, avoid a little aside here. So my, mm -hmm. the first earthquake that I felt was um, when I was a kid growing up in Western Colorado, and it was actually a, a fracking experiment, but not the, not of the sort that you're thinking of. Was it the bomb? It was the bomb. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> When was that again? Uh, let's see. It was, I can't, I will probably get the date wrong exactly. It was 72 or 73, somewhere okay. around that That's when all the frame. fun stuff happened, the 70s yeah. and the 80s. <laughs> yeah, so that came from the U.S. government had a, a program to try and find peaceful uses for nuclear bombs, mm -hmm. right? So there was a, it was to frack the shales in western Colorado yeah. as a little test. And it just, just a small test that created an, a glass globe subsurface. But. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, so. That was, so I'm glad that's the only one you felt. Yeah, anyway, not a lot of earthquakes that, uh, in western Colorado to be felt, but that was one anyway. So, uh, okay, so let's, so back to climate change and mm -hmm. predictive capabilities of models. Let's, let's take a little, let's take a little different tact on that to begin okay. with. So one of the one of the um, discussion points that comes up often is, um, okay, so if we buy that the climate is changing right now, it's warming, and at certain times in history it's been cooling, the climate is always changing and always has been, mm -hmm. right? It's a uh, very complex system. It's a, it's a very complex system. One thing that that uh, is happening now that hasn't been observed um, anywhere in the geologic record that that we can measure it with is the rate of change. Okay. Um, so, for example, in the last, um, at the last uh, thermal maximum, this is the Eocene uh, thermal maxima. Okay. Um, so this was, uh, I'll probably get the dates a little bit wrong, which I shouldn't since I'm a geoscientist, <laughs> but, you know, 60 million years ago-ish. So I'll apologize to any geologist out there if I don't, who, who want to correct yeah, yeah. you. <laughs> um, anyway, so at that time, the, the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere was much higher than it is now almost yes. double what it is now um temperatures were much higher and we can 25 look... i think 25 degrees higher yeah. in terms of fahrenheit yeah but we can look at the we can look at um the record through ocean bottom sediments right yes. and estimate how long how how long it took for that change to occur both mm -hmm. the buildup of co2 and the and the associated change in temperature and that change happened over thousands of years. That's sort of the time scale that that change has happened. Now we're in a, a situation where similar change in CO2 concentrations and similar change in temperature is happening on a scale of hundreds of years or, or even on the scale of decades. Um, so we haven't seen that in the geologic record, so we don't have an analog in the geologic record for mm -hmm. how that impacts the Earth system, okay. at least not one that we can there's nothing in the geologic record that we can measure with adequate precision to know if it happened that way. So when people start claiming that the temperature is rising, the other side of that is that actually temperatures remain consistent um, since the late 1800s, really not rising more than a half a degree Celsius, and that uh, it's been inconsistent with the predictions of climate models. So I understand that there's a difference between Fahrenheit and Celsius, but what do you say when 
the other side of the aisle says, actually, temperature staying consistent because of fossil fuels, because of human interaction. Well, so as a matter of fact, so temperature has not been consistent and it's been it's been uh, uh, going up and like all parts of our um, all parts of, the, of a complicated system. It's got uh, ups and downs within that. But the general trend is definitely uh, in the upward direction. Mm-hmm. And um, it's important to recognize scaling and systems. Right. So a. Uh, a one or two degree temperature change Celsius is uh, almost twice that in degrees Fahrenheit, right? Yes, so, that's true. Uh, so, and I have noticed that when people say there's no change in temperature, they tend to say Celsius, but then they talk about temperature and everything else as Fahrenheit. Yeah. So I was curious as to what the actual truth behind yeah. it is. So a one or two degree change in degrees Celsius may not seem like a lot and if it was just me and you today and if it's 80 degrees or 82 degrees it doesn't seem like that much difference to us Mm -hmm. but if you talk that about that being part of the total global system the amount of energy that's required to make that happen is enormous Mm -hmm. Uh, the other piece is it's not equally distributed right so if you have one or two degrees distributed as the global average Mm -hmm. it may be six eight ten degrees in, the, in particular in the polar, areas. In the polar areas where you, you, where you might, uh, in that case, be degrading the permafrost more quickly or yeah, losing sea ice melt. more quickly. <laughs> exactly. So that, and that leads to other, other impacts, right? The rate of mass loss from the Greenland ice sheet is another example. Okay. So that's happening at a faster rate than the climates were, uh, climate models were, or at the high end of what climate models were predicting okay. earlier. They've been adjusted and, um, you know, they're doing a better job now, but that's one example of the uncertainty and that's one example where they were airing our predictions generally if you took the average was airing on the low side of what actually okay. has happened at yeah. this point okay good that's fair um, yeah and that's one thing i'm particularly uh, uh aware of because i was yeah i was working in, in <laughs> the arctic doing some of the research <laughs> i was doing some of the work and i've been in the arctic while that was happening and i would go back year by year and mm-hmm. you could see big changes happening on a yearly scale which uh like visually see that visually oh okay yeah, visually. i've never been up there so <laughs> i was working this i was working on bench glacier for um uh i guess about six years i was working there this is a glacier in the in the chugach range in southeast alaska very cool um which was a fun place to work <laughs> cool place to work but uh year by year you could go back and see the thickness of the of the glacier decreasing so you mm-hmm. can see the the um, high line for the ice and see that uh, the ice receding from that year by year so you can see it happening quickly a lot of, you know almost all the glaciers in that part of the world are receding pretty rapidly and mm-hmm. so you can see it um, it's quite quite a visceral <laughs> thing to observe but um, anyway so that's one particular component of it mm-hmm. um, so one question I would ask is if we if we don't have a analog in the geologic records, we don't know exactly how the Earth would respond. Um, does it make? Is it a good idea for us to not think about uh, a way to manage our system mm-hmm. in a way that could uh, mitigate potential changes that might occur that would be detrimental to society? Mm-hmm. It seems like a big roll of the dice that, I, I that we wouldn't want to do. A huge roll of the dice, and I also think it's something that, as a fossil fuels industry, Now, back in the day, we might not have been that proactive, but I'd say that over time, because of working with people like you, the industry as a whole has moved more towards the initiatives and are actually doing a decent job at helping mitigate. I I think, and I'm I'm a little bit surprised to find still that people don't recognize that industry is doing that. So I had a real aha moment. Did you? And this was when I was was SEG president and I was at the... uh, the uh, um, IPTC conference in um, Bahrain is where it was held at at the time. Okay. This is the International Petroleum Technology Conference. Okay, okay. okay I was so, going to ask which one was that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so many acronyms. There's too many acronyms, especially at mines. I don't know why we have They're so everywhere. Many, but, <laughs> um, anyway, so I was, I was at this conference, and I, um, I was lucky enough to sit in a um, – panel session and there was the CEO of Saudi Aramco, Mm -hmm. CEO of Shell, CEO of Total, CEO of Qatar Petroleum, and the CEO of ConocoPhillips. International presence. Yeah. Like, wow. And these are the, I mean, that's a pretty high level panel of people to be talking. 
Um, and this happened to be happening at the same time that the climate change talks were going on in Paris, mm -hmm. uh, same week. Oh, good coordinating then. Yeah. Excellent. Every, every one of those CEOs made a, a very clear and very strong statement about CO2 emissions, mm -hmm. um, how they're having a warming effect on the climate and how their companies were interested in being part of the solution. So no deniers. Absolutely not. Love that. In Good. fact, not denying, just the opposite, saying here's a thing, mm -hmm. here's something that we have the ability to uh, be part of the solution. Let's figure out how we can work with governments, public, uh, other Excellent. industries to to be a part of positive change in this regard. Excellent. Positive change, 100%. Right. So that for me, so that was the first time I had heard uh, industry executives talking in that way so directly. Mm -hmm. um, it was a transformational moment for me and my own thinking and how I could engage uh, with industry and engage with uh, people who were on the opposite side of the argument mm -hmm. as well. Um, and really made me committed to trying to help uh, change the conversation in whatever little way I could uh, through whatever sorts of opportunities for influence that I had. Mm -hmm. So um, after that, I decided to make a big part of my message that I took as I was talking to uh, audiences in different places around the world, mostly in the oil and gas industry. I decided to make climate change a big part of that discussion. Um, so I tried to have that, uh, that talk with everybody uh, I think that, I had that I had a chance to, to uh, have that talk with. And so it was quite good, and it was really rewarding for me to, to have those conversations and, and to have seen that. Um, but, I, but still, so the big energy companies have continued to move in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, CO2 management is a big part of their strategic plans and a big yes. part of their um, uh, projections and a big part of their initiatives mm -hmm. yeah, you know that are ongoing so well outside of just climate change because mm -hmm. I know that's a hot button topic but I think a lot of um, the humanitarian efforts that come from the oil and gas industry or the fossil fuels industry I'm just jumping between the two yeah sure they, they get thrown to the wayside but we as an industry um, and then really company initiatives alone they are bringing water to, you know, impoverished areas. Mm -hmm. They're working on water cleanup, uh, introduction of fossil fuel economies to uh, nations that otherwise don't have anything necessarily uh, to, I guess, work into their economics. It creates such change for those communities. So I know you've been a part of some of this. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a little bit about your experiences? Yeah, so I... Uh, while I was with SEG, I worked with an organization, Geoscientists Without Borders. Um, oh, that is awesome. I didn't know that existed. <laughs> yeah, it does. Geoscientists Without Borders exists. So it's a, a program that's funded through the uh, SEG Foundation. Mm -hmm. um, so I've worked on three. I had a chance to be connected with three different uh, projects that were funded by Geoscientists Without Borders. But there's one in particular um, that I'd like to talk about. So this is a project in Benin. West Africa. Uh, this was a uh, so this is part of uh, French-speaking uh, West Africa, and um, it was a project that was funded through Geoscientists Without Borders, but primarily by CGG, an oil and gas mm -hmm. uh, service company, um, and it was focused on uh, trying to help that country better manage their water system. Uh, so the largest city there, Cotonou, is located uh, along the coast. And like most okay. coastal regions in the world, uh, is having challenges with seawater intrusion into their freshwater system. Oh, okay. um, unlike a lot of parts of the world. Uh, so Benin, uh, for example, rates 175th on the World Poverty Index. So, so a pretty impoverished country, mm -hmm. although it's um, relatively well off compared to some other countries in West Africa, it still yeah. is extremely challenged. Um, and so they have this problem. Uh, developed countries have more resources to deal with that, and Correct. they did not have the same sort of resource to um, try and deal with their seawater intrusion problem. So through this Geoscientists Without Borders project, we partnered with uh, one of the one of the uh, universities there, the University uh, of Obami Kalavi. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the National uh, Water Management Agency. Um, and we did seismic imaging, so the same kinds of technology that you use for 
hunting for oil and gas, mm -hmm. hydrocarbon exploration. Uh, we use that same sort of imaging methodology to image the aquifer system, help them improve the um, help them improve the groundwater uh, flow model that they had, which they could then use as a tool to help better manage the uh, the water system. And so now we currently have another round of that project that's funded, and uh, I'm working with some of the other faculty in the geophysics department at Mines, Jeff Schrag, Andrei Svedinsky, and Rich Cranbuehl. Um, and it's an extension of that project, but what we're focused on this time is trying to help them um, develop their own uh, infrastructure a little bit better. So one thing I learned from that previous project is that they had a lot of talent, and the students were well-trained, and mm -hmm. the faculty were well-trained. Um, which surprised me a little bit to, to find out what level they were working at. But Good they, surprise, though. It was an excellent surprise, <laughs> and it was uh, uh, eye-opening and, and made me feel a little bit naive in the way that I had approached the, the project in the, fir the first time. But that's good. You learned something Yeah, exactly. New. So uh, the second round is really focused on helping them um, uh, build tools that they can use to do their own work, right, mm -hmm. and become more self-sufficient in that regard. So the first time we came in, we had all of our fancy geophysical equipment, and they just don't have access to that stuff, even though they have the skills and ability to, to do all of that work themselves. They just didn't have access to the equipment. <clears throat> so the second round is, is focused on building low-cost instruments that enable them to get all of the materials they have in-country at relatively uh, low cost and do the imaging mm -hmm. uh, for their own problems. And we're trying to reach out to other countries in West Africa from that. Benin. <laughs> That's so exciting. I'm going to ask you about that next time we do our part two podcast. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> Can I, I have to say one more thing oh, yeah, before we it. leave there. So we have uh, here at Mines the Humanitarian Engineering Program, which when it was started uh, in the early 2000s was the first program of its type. And just this year we started a new program, uh, which is a master's degree that's this year is joint between uh, geophysics and the humanitarian engineering program but we have it set up to add other disciplines in later on so any discipline geology civil and environmental engineering um, mining potentially all have interest in building master's programs within this and it's that's the first graduate program of its type so we're really excellent. excited about that and so it's we'll an get into petroleum without borders <laughs> absolutely yeah potential Logging for, without borders <laughs> potential for almost any any department we have on campus that can get tied into this so this program. these students are going to be able to essentially do what you just described which is take their skill sets this interdisciplinary type skill set and apply it to other solutions worldwide yeah which could be all sorts of all sorts of issues that's so, how innovation yeah, happens absolutely that's amazing well okay so i understand not all climate uh, models are predictive but some have been under predictive, so to speak. It, mm -hmm. We're on both sides of the spectrum here. However, one of the things, and I've actually been called this several times, a climate denier, is how would you recommend being on both sides of the aisle? Uh, we manage that in terms of promoting our good works and acknowledging where there's room for improvement. Yeah, and well, and it might be depend. It might depend on what you're being uh, confronted with, right? Uh, it's difficult to claim that industry in general is uh, uh, and an affiliation with industry at this point is uh, makes you automatically a climate denier because yes. there is a lot of proactive work being done by uh, the energy industry mm -hmm. um, and the big oil and gas companies in particular to try and address climate change issues. Absolutely. So one thing it's tough. It's difficult in that situation when people are heated up and they're looking uh, for a confrontation, mm -hmm. right? So it's a little bit uh, difficult to diffuse that. Um, but I would say so something like something that I use often. One, if you point people to resources that illustrate to them in a, in a different context, mm -hmm. right? So in a confrontational, verbal confrontation that you're having, maybe they're not in a mode where they're going to be doing reflective thinking if you exactly. bring up some, some bigger thoughts, but providing resources to them, places that they can look to see what proactive steps industry mm -hmm. is taking on issues such as uh, climate issues or, or carbon management, right? That's mm -hmm. a big topic, and there are lots of resources out there. Uh, issues related to water management, for example. There are lots of resources out there to understand how industry is trying to be good stewards of the water resources that we have. Well, 
what do you say, because um, that is a hot topic, that fracking is contaminating the water or we can light, you know, we can light our water on fire because of the methane seeps and things along those lines. So do well, you have any thoughts on that one? <laughs> <laughs> well, there's been some work done to show that that's not true, yeah. right? Again, I think it's good to point out a lot of the other things that people may not be aware of that industry is doing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so there's there's two pieces to this. And one thing... One thing that I would hope industry would do, right, um, is be open and honest about issues that are related to the uh, to the process. Yes. Right. And so there's no question that there is potential for groundwater contamination, and I think it's important for um, society to recognize that industry is committed to being a good steward. Yes. Right. So even though there's potential for it, there's that's also true of many industries, uh, and it's important to um, do our best, mm-hmm. and, and in my experience, industry is committed to that, to doing their best to trying to make sure that um, people's drinking water isn't contaminated. Correct. Because we're all part of the same society. Exactly. I don't want to drink <laughs> nasty water either. That's right. Um, and I, I think that there are a lot of things that could help to change the public perception, right? So there's opportunity to partner with organizations that might historically have been... Um, in opposition to the oil and gas industry, like the Nature Conservancy, for example. Mm-hmm. There are locations, there's a time and place where industry and an organization like that can partner together to improve a system. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, for example, if a, a, a oil and gas company is operating in a place where there's a wetlands, you know, they can potentially partner with the Nature Conservancy to utilize some of their uh, resources to help improve the wetlands for yeah. uh, for wildlife in that area. Or uh, another example that I can think of is a partnership uh, with a local community between um, Southwest Energy uh, and a uh, town that was having a problem with um, contaminated water system. So they helped the town develop a a uh, cleanup. Not contaminated from fracking. Not though. contaminated yeah, from fracking. <laughs> That's right. Just make that clear, y'all. Don't tweet us. <laughs> not contaminated from fracking. Definitely not. Yes. Contaminated from a, a different industry in the past. Mm-hmm. They developed a partnership with that town to clean that up. So just being good stewards. They didn't create the problem, but they're there to help solve being it. Being good, good stewards and being good partners with the local community to help improve their water situation, right? So... This helps, this helps everybody. So we have humanitarian efforts both globally and here at home. And I think that's so important to recognize that we recognize as an industry that we are big, powerful. We understand that economics, such as every other industry, drives things. But we are committed to taking care of our communities and pushing our good works forward and making sure that when there is something potentially negative or potentially harmful, we are willing to not only acknowledge it, but address it so that it's not harmful in the future. Yeah. I love that. Well, you're quite busy these days. <laughs> not that it sounds like you've ever slowed down before ever. Uh, but can you take us through what your daily schedule is? What time do you wake up? Do you have a morning routine? What are your tips and tricks to saying not only proactive and but also organized and not, you know, chasing every other, uh, <laughs> I guess, problem that potentially happens throughout the day. Yeah. Um, so a couple of things. So how I manage my day, I usually, I'm usually, uh, uh, I usually try not to send out a bunch of emails to uh, people that I'm working with or people who are working for me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, after after working hours, because I know other people need to balance their mm-hmm. time as well. Uh, but I usually spend a little bit of time working in the evening, and I go to bed uh, maybe 10 or 11. And I, get, I usually get up at 6, read the paper, okay. and then spend a little bit of time at home in a more relaxed setting, drinking yeah. coffee and answering, <laughs> just starting the emails for the day and uh, starting some of the discussions and looking ahead at what meetings I have. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of managing my time, so uh, one um, one thing that I do is block time and guard that right so I always make sure that I have some time to sit and do some of the sort of bigger thinking that's necessary if you're not going to just get bogged down in all the so really time management time batching for particular activities yeah that's right and that's one that's one technique and that's one that I practice right just Mm -hmm. making sure I have blocked time it's usually at a regular time every day um, and really trying to guard that time 
as much as possible. Oh, excellent. Uh, so that's so that's one piece, and then the other piece, which is a little bit harder to define and depends on the day, because there are certain things that you uh, that are more sort of mundane management things that you just it's part of the job, and that's mm-hmm. something that that you need to do. Um, but trying to make sure that I prioritize those. Um, How do you prioritize? Then, do you make lists or? Do you just? <laughs> I make lists, so I I usually I have a little notepad okay. at the side, and every little thing that comes up that I might need to address, I put in my list, mm-hmm. and then uh, you know I usually get to some point in there, and then I put it in priority. Yeah. Right, <clears throat> and then I put it in a priority order, and I start going through those, and invariably you don't get to everything on your list. Right? No, it's impossible to get to everything, but a few of the key targets that's right I, I've found are helpful. It's important to get the get the priorities taken care of. Make sure you're setting aside time to do the sort of bigger thinking that's important, mm-hmm. um, and that'll help move things forward in a bigger picture sort of way. Um, How do you decompress? Uh, I I am an avid trail runner and mountain biker <laughs> in the summertime, and an avid skier in the wintertime. So well, mountain so biking. Those, out here in Colorado, that is definitely an extreme sport, especially the uphill portion, because I can barely do a flight of stairs some days. So <laughs> for me, it's the downhill part that's that's more extreme. So really, more likely to injure yourself anyway. So. so you're kind of fearless in that regard. <laughs> I used to be more fearless than I am now, but are you a reader? I yeah, I do. I have a. I like to spend a little bit of time before I go to bed. Have a, a nice uh, reading nook at home, and mm-hmm. I spend some time. <laughs> this may not. Some people may not think this is decompressing. One of the I like to read policy papers. Policy paper. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so policy papers related to climate change and yeah. the energy transition that we're all in the midst. of. And it doesn't of. get you fired up. It uh, does, but it it helps me. Uh, it helps me um, put arguments in a in a systematic way that I can. That's one, key. One and also just understanding things for my own benefit in a in a different way. So rather than just relying on my emotional response yeah. to something, having a little bit more educated way of looking at things is is helpful. And I try to read and understand things from all sides, right? Yes. Uh, it's easy to get into whatever it is that you want to think and not, not exactly. try to take somebody exactly. else's view. Approaching so. the only solution to a problem is to approach it from two directions. Yeah. Sometimes four. Well, uh, my final question for you is: Do you have a podcast, paper, book, or other resource that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, so I wanted to recommend something that's really along the lines that, of the things that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. And some people have read these, and some of them haven't. But every uh, big oil and gas company puts out an energy outlook, which is trying to project, you know, what. Um, what oil and gas demands are going to be like in the future, what the energy sector is going to look like, broken up into all of its pieces that are going to be part of our energy mix, um, and then a strategy for how they're going to, uh, mm-hmm. going to address that. And I think that can be very informative for, um, for everyone. And usually these are available free on their website, right? Yeah, so you they're can go always to, there. You can go to ExxonMobil's site and look at, look at their um, energy outlook, and they try to make projections out to 2050, right now um and so it addresses one their view of co2 and co2 emissions and how they're trying to play a role in that mm-hmm. tries to make a real- realistic projection of what uh, oil and gas demand is going to look like um and how they can be a part of that and also yeah. what all the other um, energy sources that we have available to us and how they're going to be a mix and how you know their company is going to address that and be a part of the a transition into that uh, new setting. So for our listeners, does this typically happen quarterly, bi-yearly, or once a year? Annually. Annually. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Yeah, there's many, many, and they (laughs) are mostly similar uh, in the outlook, and some of them are output by government agencies. Yes. Some of them are output by, uh, you know, the big oil and gas companies, and most of them are available freely, so. I'd say they're also easy to read. They're easy to read. So it's not such as their industry talking above someone's head. They definitely break it down to where everyone can not only be a part of the conversation, but enjoy the conversation. Yeah. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining today. I greatly appreciate your perspective. I love that you're part environmentalist, part fossil fuels, all geophysics. <laughs> but thank you so much for your time. I hope you have a lovely trip to Jordan. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, guys. What did you think? 
It is so important to listen to the real experts, and Dr. Bradford is on the forefront of this research. I really cannot wait to have him back on the show. Anyway, if you have any thoughts or questions for Dr. Bradford, you can shoot them to me via Facebook, Instagram, or the website at www.thecrudeaudacity.com. Let me know. We have a lot more to discuss with John, and I look forward to having him back on the podcast soon. All right, guys, before you go, if today's episode brought you any sort of value, please rate, review, and subscribe. The more five stars we get, the more often we're able to deliver quality content from industry influencers. And as always, if you have a topic or influencer you would like us to feature, you can get in touch with us via Facebook, Instagram, or at our website, www.thecrudeaudacity.com. We greatly appreciate your engagement, and until next week, give them hell.